Welcome to the Beethoven 9 at 9 podcast, first aired Saturdays at 9 a.m. in 2015 on Colorado Public Radio. I'm Monica Vischer. Each of our nine episodes takes us further along Beethoven's journey to becoming one of the most important figures in history, a man whose musical ideas shattered convention and set the course for composers to come. Last time we looked at the Symphony Number no. 2, setting the tone for the seismic shift about to take place with Beethoven's Third Symphony, premiered in 1805. And that's the piece we examine today. I'm joined by Beethoven scholar Jan Swafford, author of Beethoven, Anguish and Triumph. Jan, good to have you back. I'm back and good to be back. As we start our discussion of Beethoven's Third Symphony, talk to me about what was going on in the world at the time and how the political climate impacted Beethoven's creativity. The Enlightenment was an incredibly hopeful period of humanity. Uh, People thought that rational governments were going to be possible and there was going to be a science of humanity and we were going to understand the universe fairly quickly and that the arts were going to have a new kind of humanistic dimension that was applicable to everybody. There was a sort of populist attitude toward the arts. And Beethoven grew up with this incredible excitement and revolutionary fervor, and he never lost it. Mm. So Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 3 broke the mold for all symphonies written up to this time, 1803. What made it so revolutionary? It was bigger, more intense. It used a bigger orchestra. The scope of the ambition was revolutionary. I don't think Beethoven intended to be a revolutionary person. And really, he based everything he did on the past. He wasn't trying to overthrow the past. And the symphony as the king of musical forms was already set up by Haydn and Mozart. But Beethoven is the one who said, now I can seize what a great symphony can really be and show the world what it can be and that it is not just entertainment, it is something powerful and overwhelming. Can you give us some musical specifics? I'm a composer and a writer, and sometimes big things start with very small things. And the Third Symphony, musically, started with this little bass line, bum, 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 which became the theme of the last movement. So he took this little bass line and a dance and made it into a theme for the first movement. And it's a funny hero theme because it's in three beat, not two beat. It's not a march. It's almost a waltz. movement is extraordinarily dynamic. It is constantly in flux. Every time something happens, it just sort of fades away into something else. It is constantly in motion. Themes form and dissolve. The form is very complex and original. Every movement has an original form. 
It's sort of in the model of an unbounded hero who shatters boundaries and the rules of form get bent. It's a complicated piece and its inspiration is complicated and its references to things outside itself, to Napoleon, and the French Revolution and so on, is enormously rich and complex and that is one of the reasons this piece is, is, is the monument that it is, the cultural and humanistic monument that it is. Jan, do you think Beethoven was aware he was breaking new ground, changing the genre of the symphony, the orchestra itself, or were the changes really just the end result of what he needed to satisfy his creative needs? I think he obviously knew that it was something new and enormous and beyond anything that had been done in ambition, but he wasn't interested in talking about it. And he always saw his music in the context of tradition. He was picking up things that Haydn and Mozart did and, and doing them in his own way. For somebody who from the beginning was considered a revolutionary, Beethoven was extraordinarily involved with the past and tradition all the time. He did say that he thought this was the best thing he had done, which was not a particularly profound statement. It clearly was. The most poetic thing I ever heard about it was his student, Ferdinand Ries, who said, I think heaven and earth will shake mm. when this piece is performed, is premiered. There's another thing that's important, I think, to realize about this piece, and nobody has ever really talked about this or knew it. When it was premiered, it didn't have a name at all. It wasn't called anything. It wasn't called Eroica. It wasn't called Bonaparte. So nobody had any handle in the early audience uh, as a way to get a hold of this piece. They just heard this enormous thing. And the first movement is really very hard to kind of understand and follow. And uh, at one point, somebody yelled in a performance, I'll give a Kreutzer if this thing will stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a Kreutzer. It, was, it a, wasn't a serious offer because a Kreutzer was worth about two cents. the story behind the nickname of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 3, the Eroica. Every note of that symphony was written for a piece called Bonaparte, and it had a story that went along with that. And then Beethoven's student Ferdinand Ries came in one day, and he looked, and there on the table was a title page of a symphony called Bonaparte. And he said, oh, by the way, have you heard that Napoleon just crowned himself emperor? Now, Beethoven had just written this piece according to a certain image of Napoleon as a progressive to finish the job of the French Revolution. That he had developed in his mind for, for many years. 
Yes, and what Reese had just said to Beethoven was the absolute negation of that. And you would expect him to say, well, maybe it's not so bad. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> he was really, I think, planning to go to France for a while and hopefully, I think, present this piece to Napoleon in person. And you would expect him to gloss it over, and he didn't. He went through the roof, and he said, this shows that he's nothing but a tyrant. He's in it for himself. And what he actually did was to scratch out Napoleon's name so violently that he went right through the paper. But <laughs> it's not so simple. In pencil, in Beethoven's hand, written on that same page later, is written on Bonaparte. And later he told the publisher the name is really Bonaparte. But he didn't publish it that way. He premiered it with no name. And then he, when he published it, he called it Symphony Heroica in memory of a great man. So do you consider Beethoven's Eroica Symphony music for the ages? Oh, certainly. Our sense of what a symphony is was created by the Eroica above all. The Eroica is kind of one of the great downbeats in music that we say changed the equation. It changed the sense of what music could do, the scope of it, the ambition of it. Our sense of a symphony begins with the Eroica. So as long as symphonies exist, the Eroica will be the kind of part of that foundation. Beethoven's composing process. He wrote at the piano sometimes, but he took walks every single day, rain or shine, and those were working walks where he was thinking and he carried a sketchbook with him. He was very famous for that. There were a lot of sketches for the Eroica. You can see that from the beginning he already has a concept of what he's aiming at. He was not somebody who just waited for lightning to strike. Every idea that he put down had to serve the concept. It had to serve the leading motifs, which were harmonic and melodic and rhythmic. They also had to be good. Sometimes in a sketch, he would put a really lousy second theme in, and people are astonished by that sometimes, but it, it, he just hadn't thought of a good tune yet. But So he put it a bad one in as a placeholder, but if you look at the bad ones, they still have the leading ideas of the piece. They're, They're still, still pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, and they still conform to the leading motifs and ideas of the piece. He already knew he was going to write a piece about Napoleon. From the beginning, he knew what he had a general sense that the last movement was going to be like those piano variations that he wrote. He already had the, an idea when he wrote down a concept sketch of what he called the Minuetto Serioso, a serious minuet, which became this dashing scherzo instead. Uh, he probably knew he was going to have a funeral march for second moon, so he 
early in the process, he already had a very good sense of what the piece was about and why. Uh, but that didn't mean the ideas came immediately. Sometimes he had to chase things. The reality is, though, by the way, everybody thinks Beethoven spent years writing everything. Most of the time, Beethoven wrote very fast, and he wrote the Eroica in about three months, as far as we can tell. That is incredible. So the Eroica Symphony, which we're focusing on right now, has been considered a musical watershed. How did it help usher in the Romantic era? The Eroica brought a new scope, a new ambition, a new sense of individual personality into music. Uh, Haydn and Mozart tried to make each of their big pieces distinctive. Beethoven intensified that by a kind of uh, factor that no one had ever seen before. Suddenly he was in your face as an individual. Uh, he simply expanded the definition of what music could be, and the individuality of his pieces became more and more uh, memorable. So let's talk about the story that Beethoven tells in the Eroica Symphony. Beethoven conceived it as what he called a characteristic piece and we call a program piece. It was called Bonaparte, so it was a piece about Napoleon and what he did. Traditionally, for over a century, everybody's seen the first movement, even though it's in three-quarter time, it's not a march, it's not military music, but it's very powerful. Everybody has seen it as some kind of an image of a battle or a campaign or something like that. after the battle. The second movement is a funeral march. There's nothing mysterious about that at all. You bury the dead. I think the third movement, which is this wonderfully effervescent, over-the-top, exhilarating scherzo with this fantastic horn call trio, is what you hope to achieve after you bury the dead. It's the reclaiming of joy. the most mysterious because it's based on this little dance tune that Beethoven used in a ballet being about how art humanized these creatures that were made out of clay, the effect of art on the spirit. And it begins in the form of, a, uh, with a sort of military introduction, but then it becomes this little dance. It's a contra dance where everybody dances with everybody else. And Princes may dance with chambermaids in that dance, and that was very important at the time. So that dance became an image, I think, of the ideal society. And in many ways, bringing still life to real life in the Symphony Number no. 3. Yes. Yes. 
The Eroica is a humanistic piece. There's not a hymn to God in it, not even in the funeral march. It is utterly about humanity. Not that Beethoven had forgotten about God, but this is a humanistic celebration, and I think the Eroica is one of the great humanistic documents of all time in Western art. Jan Swafford, thank you for joining us today. Thanks again, Monica. On to the next. Beethoven symphonies are just part of what we bring you on Colorado Public Radio every day. We're on the dial in Denver at 88.1 FM, also in Boulder at 99.9 FM, and online at cprclassical.org. Our website lists our favorite recordings of Beethoven's Third Symphony, and you can find a video of the piece in concert and read more about the music there as well. You can subscribe to the Beethoven 9 at 9 podcast in the iTunes store. Gene Inaba is our producer for the Beethoven 9 at 9, and our online editor is Brad Turner. Jan Swafford's biography is Beethoven, Anguish, and Triumph. I'm Monica Vischer. Next time, Jan and I explore Beethoven's Symphony No. 4, an inspiring creation before his famous fifth. That's next time, only on the Beethoven 9 at 9 podcast from Colorado Public Radio.